that's great, but it's too late and we gotta get on the helicopters in five minutes. <laughs> and I'm like, five minutes isn't real. Like, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Welcome back to Are You Watching Closely? I'm Spencer Channel. And I'm Mallory Strong. I'm a film score composer, writer, and uh, IMDb geek. And I'm an artist and a mathematician, and I use Netflix as a nightlight. (laughs) (laughs) And we're here to talk about uh, movies and TV that we love. Uh, We watch them right before we record the show, and then we break them down for the the things we love about them and the the things they mean to us. Uh Uh-huh, and we're here to watch movies closely, that is paying close attention to the movie and being close with each other while we do it. (laughs) (laughs) To improve the value of uh, of movies and TV, Uh, just... You know, uh, we, we believe that close viewing um, at being active viewers leads mm-hmm. to a more valuable viewing experience, especially if you discuss it with people uh, that you're close with. Yeah. <laughs> we now have uh, intro music, which you just heard. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And Spencer wrote all that uh, himself. And I uh, I mean, I, I, I'm part of that process, but that's a Spencer channel <laughs> music. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, so. Yes, uh, we just watched, uh, rewatched Arrival, and so that is our show today, uh, Arrival. Yeah. When was the first time we watched that? It was like late 2016, early 2017, right? I saw it in theaters. Oh yeah. Actually, I don't, I don't remember exactly when it came out, but I did, I did see it in theaters. It was. A, something totally different to see it in, in theaters than it is to like watch mm. it on a, on a computer screen. Yeah, I bet. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty, um, uh, what's the word? Immersive. Immersive or massive. Uh, There's a sense of scale. Yeah. Scope. Yeah. But mm. I didn't see it until uh, you showed it to me in, uh, uh, in like 2016, 2017. 2016, yeah. Um, so like overall impressions. Um, mm-hmm. I walked away from it thinking a lot about like you know how immersive the experience was as a whole even so just like watching on a computer screen it's oh, the absolutely. kind of story you just kind of fall into it and uh-huh. it really puts you in an environment um, and in a place yeah yeah definitely immersive also it kind of uh, philosophically trippy <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know what I mean uh, with the uh, the way it deals with language and math and science all wound up together. I'm on this really intense emotional journey, but also on this really intense philosophical and scientific and self-referential almost. Like spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I mean, it's almost like revelatory. Like I remember when I walked out of the theater having watched that film for the first time, I was like, I will never see anything the same ever again. Like Mm. like we're brought along that journey with, with, with the main character, Dr. Banks, um, yeah, Louis Banks. Louis Banks, and Louis Banks. and and like we're brought along that journey with her, where she just like transcends the limitations of time. Uh-huh. Which like when I watched at the theater, I was like, oh my god, I was experiencing life all at once. In a, uh-huh. in just a, the way that movies can give you a taste of of experiencing the world in a way that you haven't yet. That was the thing that that I came out of the movie like, oh my god, you know, um, I'm seeing things anew. Um, yeah. And there's, there's not a lot of movies that do that for me. Like, Arrival is one of them. 
Um, Interstellar was another. Definitely um, Loving Vincent mm. um, gave me like just a completely new way of looking at color and shape and like a, an artistic gesture in just the trees around me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, we saw Loving Vincent in, in Nashville, and then as we walked out of the theater, like, I, I remember, I was like, the light looks completely different, and the colors look like they're swimming, and, like, there's yeah. all these things that just, like, there's movies that, that I love that do that to you, you know, that's, it's, 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 it's most about just, like, showing you, a, uh, opening your eyes to a new way of, of experiencing life. Uh-huh. And just to clarify, if anyone's unfamiliar with Loving Vincent, it's a movie made entirely of paintings where literally every frame is an oil painting um, in the style of Vincent van Gogh. So <laughs> Totally crazy. It's a great movie. Yeah. Um, okay, back to Arrival. Going back to what you said about it feeling so immersive, I do want to talk about one element of, that made me feel completely immersed in it, which was the sound design. Mm. May as well start right in the middle of the movie with a moment from... There is no middle. <laughs> right. I thought, I thought your story had a, a, a big... I thought this is where your story started. Uh-huh. <laughs> After Dr. Banks's third session uh, communicating with the heptapods, she... Uh, comes back to like the lab and she's drawing on a, a, an image of one of their words or phrases or sentences. And she sets down her ruler. There's a bit of ambient noise and she draws a line across the paper. And the line that she drew was so loud. It's like that sound element transported us into her future memory. Oh, that's really cool. When I, I remember that sound, and actually I was confused by it. I didn't understand that that sound was her drawing a line. Mm. I just heard like a... And I was like, "What? where did we go? You know, like it felt yeah. like we were transporting somewhere. Uh-huh. It, it, it felt to me kind of hyper real, mm-hmm. where it... I'm, I'm fairly certain it was her drawing a line because we got a similar sound when she drew a line and we watched her do that yeah. um, after the flash forward. But in the moment, it's it, you're right. It, it feels like something so much more than than that gesture. Well, we can talk about like how the sound design, like the elements of a movie, uh, like sound design, for instance, are used to um, emulate the feeling of crossing through time. And uh-huh. experience time all at once, but like just the sound design, apart from how it's employed to create the overall uh, like philosophy of the film, like uh, like okay, like the bird thing, the bird chirps uh, while she's having the conversation, and you uh-huh. think she's in two places at once. That that all happens, okay, fine. But then also just like from the from from the very start, um, like I was so struck by like when she's teaching and then there's the alarms at the school and like every moment when like there's the cars parked in the garage, the radios, the TV, all the way to the helicopter that comes and picks her up and the arriving at the camp and then even like breathing in the hazmat suits. Uh The sound design is so specific and so immersive and present and beautiful that like even before the character has has gone to like a, a place that's unfamiliar to them, as an audience, I feel like I'm being dropped into a world that is, like, real and tangible because it creates so much just, like, natural sound, you know? Um, it's, yeah, like, fully. It... Like, even just the fully noises. Right. Like, it's so uh, richly sonic. 
uh-huh. as a movie. I think I get what you're saying. And the other thing I noticed about that is especially in those moments with the helicopter and she's arriving at the camp, it's all very fast-paced and also there are sounds that are just kind of like cranked up to 11 um, mm. volume-wise. And so you have this rich, like, foley environment, but it's also just, like, a little bit more than it should be, and it's uh, the the whole atmosphere is just a little bit louder than um, the atmosphere of, like, the, the top half of the story circle, the um, comfortable, familiar world that we sort of started in. And that's why I think the line on the paper was so striking to me, because it was one of those intensified moments where I didn't expect one to be. Mm. And then to transition from that intense line on the paper to complete silence while she's in this flash forward, Um, complete silence until the pebble drops in the water, which is way too loud. And that transports us back into, I say us, really uh, (laughs) Dr. Banks, but also like the audience with her, (laughs) right? All of us, yeah. All of us back into the, the world of the lab. Yeah. Yeah, I I love this word you're using, which is transport. Like, uh, uh, it it really does, it's a whole movie where we are transported um, through, like, place, but also through time and through frames. And, like, there's all this just transporting that happens, Mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, the, uh, the the other, like, end of transportation is arrival. Um, you mm-hmm. use transportation to arrive into the places. <laughs> and like, that's the whole, I love that that's the title of the film because it's uh, the whole construct, uh, the whole way the film is structured is we're constantly arriving in places where we're like, what is going on? Uh-huh. Uh, like what, what is our, what is our purpose here? <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so like, I love that, that the sound design is used as a transportative if that's a word, <laughs> tool <is> <laughs> to get us there and, and to, to like motivate that, that transition into a, into an arrival. Uh huh. And even when she's first taken to the, the unfamiliar world of, of the, the camp by the landing site, there's that same intensified sound design to transport us to that unfamiliar world in like the, that crossing of the first threshold in the story circle. Mm-hmm. Okay, can we talk about another like form of transportation in the film, which is, um, or really just the idea of the film as a whole as a transportation, um, because like uh, there's something that happens in this movie visually, um, uh, mostly in the first act. Um, it comes back a little bit, but it's mostly in the first act when things are getting set up, um, w- w- which reflects the experience of an audience watching a movie as well. Which is <laughs> now that I've. <laughs> like strung you along and buried Uh the lead (laughs) which is frames Um, oh yeah which is you know like there's there's this shot near the beginning of the the, the film where like dr banks is standing looking out on onto the lake through her big window which Uh looks exactly like the big uh white glass the the glass isn't white the the fog is white but it looks like oh yeah the the frame that 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 separates the heptapods from the humans Uh um it looks exactly like it and not only does it look like those things it looks like the frame of the film Uh which is rather wide i don't know if it's like you know 235 one or if it's just like a, a, I don't know exactly the, the, the aspect ratio, but it's like pretty damn wide. Um, I remember in movie theaters seeing the film and seeing that frame within the frame and, and it looked like it was just like, you know, when you put two mirrors up against each other 
and you can look through the mirrors and you see like the frames going down reflected in each other. Oh yeah. That was what it felt like. It felt like looking into a thing that was looking back or, or multiplying itself within itself or something like that. All those frames within frames in the film, like transport me through. And so like, let me talk really quickly though about the reason I bring this up is because like there's the frame of her window looking out onto the lake. There's the frame that they used to look through into at the heptapods. Uh-huh. And there's the TV frames, the TV screens that she watches, that that we see her watch. There's this, you know, shot, uh, uh, reverse shot of her watching TV. But then there's also just this really striking long shot in her classroom. She turns on the TV um, and then we see the class and her from the TV's perspective. Uh-huh. She's standing off to the side of the frame and then she, you know, just gently, slowly walks to center frame and stares at us. That was also such a striking moment for me. And I can't really articulate why. Um, and sometimes I will be watching a movie and I'll pause it and I'll say, well, why did I just kind of gasp at that frame? <laughs> um, this happened yesterday when we were watching The King's Speech. Mm-hmm. And I, I get something about how she starts at the edge of the frame or sort of, or I'm sort of looking a little bit at the student who asked her to turn on the TV in the first place. And then she takes up the entire frame and I, I feel like I'm starting to be enveloped into her world. But is there something else about that particular frame that you noticed that made it so striking? I mean, one thing about it that really like struck me was that it's, you know, uh, we're the audience, we're the ones who usually are watching the characters and it's unsettling for the characters to be watching the audience. We talked about this in the last episode a little bit with like the, in the birds where the, the ornithologist confronts the main character in uh, the diner and says like, I think you're evil. Like that's, it's so unsettling for the characters who we think we're just kind of sitting back and watching passively their story unfold when they address the audience, like in house of cards or in any other, you know, work where there's like a direct to audience. It's, it's, it breaks the fourth wall. In the case of a movie, the silver screen, um, all of the separation between us and them is is just pulled away. And so, like to me, that's the that's the that's one thing that's unsettling to be watched while you're the one watching. Um, like, mm. there's an element of like it that's that makes it more immersive. I think for one thing, because like you feel like there's no separation between you and them anymore. Uh-huh. You can't hide. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, in the dark uh, audience. I mean, and it's part of part of it is like the eye contact, the feeling of eye contact, where she's staring directly in, into the screen that we're staring at. It's kind of like she's staring at the heptapods, and the heptapods are staring back at her through that screen, mm. um, which just makes it feel like somehow I'm connected to this character, um, even when there's still that element of why is she looking at me? I thought I was watching a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That tension's a little bit diffused when she's standing off to the side of the frame because it's just less, you know, centered. It's less kind of stolid in a way. And then when she steps to the side of the frame, there's, there's a lot more just kind of power in that composition, I think, than there is when it's just kind of off to the side, you know? So I don't know. There's a lot, there's a lot to that, but frames are so important. I think throughout the whole thing, um, uh, passing through frames, looking through frames. The whole first part of the film, like Dr. Banks is looking through frames. She looks through her window, she looks at the TV screen, um, and she looks uh, through the glass at the heptapods in in Uh Act 2. And later she's looking at uh, communication screens with other 
sites, she's looking at computer screens, she's looking at frames within computer screens mm -hmm. of different heptapod words, phrases, senses. And some of those screens that the, the governments are looking through at each other, you know, uh, over like whatever the, the analog to Skype is for the governments, you know? Oh, yeah. And then when they become disconnected, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that'll come back. Um, but when she, when she sort of uh, transcends time, when she's given the gift of, of like existing all at once and experiencing uh, no time, um, she's taken into that the space where the hopt heptapods float through, um, mm. which is her passing through the frame. The frame doesn't exist anymore. She's just there in their like white foggy world, uh, which is like going into the silver screen basically. Um, and for the audience, I think too, we have that, that, that feeling of transportation through a frame that felt uh, like there was some separation that we couldn't go into. Like I, I, there's a there's an analogy there where like the audience gets to be transported into this world um, and get to experience non-linear time as she does too. Uh, Absolutely, with her. And I think that's also the moment where, um, if you haven't realized it yet, you've realized that Luis is experiencing time as non-linear and her what seem to be flashbacks are actually flash forwards. Oh, <laughs> I love that sleight of hand. Uh-huh. Yeah. God. You talked about that shot where Louise Banks is standing in the frame of the window looking out at the lake. And the thing that really struck me about that shot this time around was that it's the same frame as the very opening shot of the movie where we just see those windows without our protagonist in them. And she's narrating and she says, we are so bounded by time. And so this time when I saw her standing in front of that window, she seemed bounded by the frame spatially, but also bounded by time. Um, knowing what was gonna happen in the movie, knowing she was gonna start experiencing time all at once. Mm. At that point in the movie, it seemed she was bounded by time. And so I, I started to see frames throughout the movie as binding spatially, but also binding temporally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This seems this seems so uh, ridiculous, having just been transported to a place where like time is no object and tenses uh, don't matter. But the past tense of bind is bound. Uh, <laughs> Not that it even matters though, because time is a time doesn't exist, <laughs> and it's nonlinear. That's like that moment where 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 she comes up to the to the colonel and she's like, uh, you know, there is no time. Uh, the heptapod's gift is you know uh, their language, and when you learn it, you see the world as they see it. And he's like, that's great, but it's too late, and we got to get on the helicopters in five minutes. <laughs> and I'm like, five minutes isn't real, like. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what does it matter that she was, uh, you know, bound by time and not bounded, right. but... Uh, <laughs> bound, bounded. Bound. Bound, bound, bounded. Bounded, <laughs> dude. <laughs> so can we talk about the music? Oh, yeah. As, as separate from the sound design, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Especially in this movie. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, it, yeah, well, the way this movie's designed, especially, like, it's, it's hard to distinguish sometimes between what is music and what is sound, and um, and that's, I, I'm sure, in large part due to um, 
the late, great Johan Johansson. Um, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, but he passed away, uh, sadly, I, either right before Arrival came out or right after. I remember l uh, that happening sometime around Arrival's release, but mm. that was so sad. Johan Johansson was brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, I think he also scored, like, Theory of Everything. I could be wrong about that. You're right about that. Um, and and uh, a number of other films. I really enjoyed his music. And I enjoyed in Arrival. Um, so, uh, Johan Johansson, um, I, I love you. I'm sorry. You're gone. <laughs> but time doesn't exist, so <laughs> you'll always be with us in, in the movie Arrival. So it goes. Uh, yeah, you are, un you are unstoppable. <laughs> um, so a lot of the score happens on a, like, very low... Uh, like C pedal. I'm gonna get into like some just a little bit of music theory shit right now. So here for it. Um, <laughs> the score uh, often happens on top of like just a rumbling low uh, tone. Okay, you know, like there's a thing that just kind of yeah. And I don't have perfect pitch, so I'm not gonna be able to just hum a C off the top of my head. But often, suddenly there's kind of enter this. You know, uh -huh. um, and it feels like uh, the 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 size of the heptapods. It feels like the um, the scope of the story. But it also just because it's a C, evokes um, for me some re some really specific music, which is um, also Sprach Zarathustra, mm. um, which is the the you know, very famous music that opens 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh -huh. um, though that's not its original context, but that's culturally what it's come to represent a lot, is sure. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Another film where um, beings uh, encounter a monolith, uh -huh. and the monolith uh, leads them to transcend the bounds of their dimensions. Right. Um, and of course, there's a visual similarity between the sort of I don't know what to call it. It's like not quite an ellipsoid um, <laughs> of the the spaceship. There's a, a visual similarity between the spaceship in Arrival and the monolith in 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah, um, they're both black. Um, uh -huh. They're both quite large and looming uh -huh. and um, tall. Mm -hmm. The characters in both films run their fingers along the, the monolith in in, in, in quite uh, striking visu visually striking shots. Uh -huh. Although with Kubrick, most things are visually striking. So I don't know what I mean by that exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, They're also both made of a kind of incomprehensible material. Mm, yeah. And even in Arrival, in the dialogue, they say they don't know what chemical, chemical substance it's made of. Right. Um, but yeah, so also Sparkler's history, just in case you don't know, is that is that, that piece of music that's like orchestral and, and it starts with a... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's that thing. So... There's, there's this, uh, just, I don't know, there's a, a little bit of a callback, I think, or an illusion musically and sonically to another really great, uh, like, sci-fi space um, adventure thing um, mm -hmm. where there's, a, a, you know, a foreign, uh, a monolithic object that arrives on Earth and, and is there um, to facilitate humanity, um, or in, in the case of 2001, will be, what will become humanity, um, uh, in a, in a momentous, like, uh, uh, growth or, uh, revelation that leads to, um, you know, uh, evolution or, uh, another uh, kind of evolution, uh, transportation. Oh yeah. Ooh, let's use that because <laughs> spaceships, because the bone, uh, as a weapon, uh -huh. as a gift, 
uh, in, a, in that famous smash cut in 2001 becomes a spaceship uh, uh-huh. a mode of transportation. Um, and it does it, it we arrive uh, through that smash cut into a new um, future world. Um, so there's a lot of analogy, I think, between 2001 um, and Arrival. And I think Johan Johansson is aware of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but you also mentioned how the music is often almost indistinguishable from the sound design, where I think part of the reason for that is that the music sounds so much like the heptapod speech when we first heard it. Mm. And when we're in the helicopter going across Montana and we see the spaceship for the first time, there's this, it's a four note melody. I think it goes up a third and then down a third and then down a second. Um, you want to sing it? I don't think that would mean much to someone who's not musical. I think it goes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It goes like that. I heard that today. It struck me as what it would sound like if the person we just heard speaking, a person, heptapod uh, person, we just heard speaking sang. I think that's what it would sound like. I'm not, oh, I'm not following that way. Okay, so so we heard the heptapod speak, and it sounded like... Uh-huh. And I thought if that creature sang, it would sound like... Oh, oh that would be like their singing voice. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so it, it, uh, my brain, because of that, my brain couldn't quite figure out if that was music or a sound coming from the spaceship. Of course, later we learned that nothing, sound or light or radiation of any sort, is emitted from the spaceships. But at that moment, I, I wasn't quite sure. Oh, so the first time that theme appears, um, because I I don't know why I catalog these kinds of things in my brain, but I do. The first time that theme appears is when the helicopter is approaching the the base camp near the near their ship. Uh-huh. Um, and what happens in the sound design, I remember this, the helicopter noise is super loud when we're inside the helicopter. They're having a conversation, blah, 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 this dialogue. And then we cut outside the helicopter um, and the helicopter's flying towards camp. The sounds of the rotors, the sounds of the blades kind of fades a little bit and it becomes quiet and you're like, what is going to happen? And then that theme arrives um, in that moment of, of like a little bit of, of quiet and it's uh-huh. as the ship appears. So what you're saying is yeah. that sounded like it might've been diegetic where like maybe that was the sound of the ship hanging out uh, right. and floating there. And that's what I couldn't quite figure out in that moment, which is what made it just a little bit more immersive, a little bit more uh, philosophically trippy. Yeah. Like, I don't know what else to say about that. The barriers, <laughs> yeah, the barriers were, were, were taken down in a way that was, like, made it ambiguous. And so you had to question sort of, like, which which world was which. Yeah. Um, I, th- that brings up another thing about this the music, which is that, like, a lot of it is very vocal um, in a weird way. Like, it's, it's lyrical, it's vocal. There's a whole, like... Uh, like uh, children making like random phonemes at times. Um, I can't remember exactly how that how that melody goes, but there's a there's a melody that comes in. Um, you know that's uh, like there's a little thing. I don't know. I can't I can't replicate it. Um, but like like a lot of it and 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 the strings when the strings come in they kind of sing in a way. Uh-huh. There's a thing that's very like it breathes um, and it and it sings and and the music feels kind of like speech um, uh, as well. Yeah. Except for the one theme that goes. 
Yeah. You know, like that yeah, hugely yeah. loud theme that just like is so powerful and it feels like um, it feels like technology and it feels like it feels like God in a way. Uh-huh. It feels like um, progress. Like I don't know. It just it feels massive. Um, yeah. And and kind of industrial in a way. Yeah. Um, I can see that. Hear that. Mm-hmm. The first time we hear that is when they're walking up the corridor, <laughs> across the corridor. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Both. Um, and this is the first time they are approaching the that the the glass that separates them from the heptapods. We hear this big, massive, powerful theme, um, and we're not quite sure what to make of it um, at that point. I don't think, but it does represent sort of just the. It's almost like walking into a cathedral, like it's a spiritual space. Um, it's it seems beyond in some way. It, it seems beyond. It also seems inside. Like, it's a little bit more vibration than there should be. It's like we're inside the vocal cords, and the spaceship itself seems a little bit alive because it's not smooth. It's ridged like the skin of the heptapods. Oh, wow. So it's almost like we've, we're, we're, we're inside, like, th- their essence, and we're vibrating with them. Yeah. Vibrations are so important because vibration, like, sound waves is the thing that, that gives um, Dr. Banks the gift. It's it's like a musical tone, but it's not music. Like it, when when she's when she finally uh, you know it, it goes up in that little pod and, and 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 comes into the 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 white foggy space where the heptapods are. Uh-huh. It, the heptapod is like, was it Abbott? I can't remember if it was Abbott or Costello Abbott who is survived. Death I think Abbott, process. Ab- Costello survived. Costello survived. So Costello is like you you know you you have the gift. Um, you know she's like I don't understand and. And to let her understand, to, like, enable her to understand the thing, the heptapod just goes, like, like, there's just this massive vibration sound wave thing that somehow, through that word, transmits the gift to her, and she understands, and and she can do it now. Um, Do you remember that moment? Do you recall... That, I don't. That was the thing. <laughs> that was that was the thing where like she didn't. She, she they said you have the gift, and she's like I don't understand, and mm. and for her to cross that threshold into comprehension, all it took was the heptapod going, you know, and now she understands. Yeah. Um. And I just love that sound waves, music, vibrations uh-huh. are the the thing that transmits that gift. Um. If, whether that gift is language or or revelation or transcendence or whatever it is, it's somehow beyond, and the right. way to get there is via vibration. Mm. Yeah, the most fundamental element of sound. Invisible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Experience. And to see that in a movie theater, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about time? I have a way into time that, like, I know this okay. is, a, like, just a, so complicated in, in this movie because it's so achronological in a way that's really deceptive. And Yeah, t- let, let's talk about that. <laughs> okay. What's your way in, please? <laughs> so he, I've been thinking a lot about how does the film um, bring me to understand and experience timelessness? 
Um, because it does. I understand that as an audience member. I walk away from the film being like, oh my gosh, everything happens all at once. Like, uh, you know, that character, the little girl is unstoppable because uh, she never started, uh, you know, like she, she doesn't have an end or in a beginning. She has a just, she exists in the time that she exists. And that is also just like timeless. Cause we can always visit it, you know, that has no uh-huh. bounds. Um, but how do we as an audience get to understand that? Um, I think the answer is incrementally. Um, and I think, uh, the, the film does a really, it's really craftful the way that we're brought into that bit by bit. And so I kept track uh, knowing that there were going to be flash, what I thought were flashbacks would be flash forwards. You know, there would be transportation moments. I kept track of when those happened. Um, we have our opening sequence where uh-huh. what we th- what we are tricked into thinking is in the past. You know, it's actually in the future, but we know it's a different time than the time our story begins, quote unquote. Um, there's that moment, and then from there we get flashbacks, which we know now are flash forwards. And the first one of those happens um, after uh, Dr. Banks learns the names of the heptapods. We spend the whole first act and the first beginning of the second act, right, uh-huh. in real time, quote unquote. The first time we break that uh, boundary is when uh, Dr. Banks learns the names of the heptapods. And that the reason for that, I think, is because that's such a revelatory moment. The colonel calls it the first significant, uh, what's the word? Um, breakthrough? Yeah, breakthrough that they've had. Um, and it's marked by a quick flashback, or rather flash forward, um, to her, her daughter. The second flashback happens while she's analyzing um, pictures of the words. They've been communicating, they've Uh been sharing vocabulary. She's looking at pictures of the words in her office and she gets like three flashes uh, back and forth between then and now. Right, and those are the ones that are facilitated by the line against the ruler. I think so. Yes, I think that's right. The third flashback happens um, with a sound cue before a visual. So we've been introduced to this idea that we're going to be moving through time a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, and then once we understand that the third time it happens, it starts with the sound cue where, where sh- the girl asks like, what does this mean, mommy? Like we hear her ask a question while we're still in the camp. And it's not till a little bit later in the scene that we cut to where that sound belongs, which is in that flash forward flashback. Right. And the girl is asking or like, what is the word for, you know, uh, the, this, 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 this thing, you know, zero sum game and whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but I love that like sound becomes a transportation tool uh, first and then it becomes dialogue and then there's a fourth flashback um, that that uh, basically it, I, I, I hardly count it as a fourth one though because it's in that same sequence we leap between times within the flashback. So we're in the base camp, then we cut to her as a teen uh, asking what the word is for this or that. And then within that, we cut to her uh, on her deathbed, and we cut to her as a baby, uh, and we cut back to the base camp, and we're suddenly kind of in three places at once, and then four places at once. Right. Um, and that's when Dr. Uh, or the scientist, what is his name, uh, he says uh, they call it nonlinear orthography. And he introduces the concept and dialogue of learning a language and experiencing the world through the language that you're learning. Uh Do you dream in their language? And the bird starts chirping and the heptapod is suddenly there at the foot of her bed and she wakes up and we're like, oh, was that all a dream? Is she just tired? 
it, le- it again, like it's so deceptive. It leads us to think that like maybe that was all just her hallucinating. Maybe that was all her just being fatigued, and maybe that was just nothing. Maybe she's just kind of you know uh, overworked. Yeah. And the other thing about that scene in particular, where the scientist guy says, "Do you dream in their language?" And she says, maybe I've had a couple dreams, but that doesn't make me unfit for service. And she looks away, there isn't a character. Mm-hmm. And she looks in a direction that we don't really know exists in the scene. The way the blocking is set up, we see Luis's face, we see the scientist's face, and we just have this sort of like um, back and forth of close-ups, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know anything about the setup of the room. So when she looks the other way in the direction we haven't seen before, it's kind of trippy because that doesn't happen in in uh, what like classical filmmaking. <laughs> I, I I totally agree that it's like disorienting. right. And also, uh, it's dor- disorienting using the same techniques that Stanley Kubrick uses at the end of two thousand and one. Um, where the guy is aging and sees himself older and younger and looks off a of frame to the monolith, which isn't there. And then when we cut back, it is. And um, there's all these moments in 2001. So, like, I encourage you to, to rewatch the last sequence of 2001 A Space Odyssey in context with this moment we're discussing in Arrival because you will see parallels between, like, characters looking off camera as if they're looking at someone and we know no one's there. Then we cut there and someone is and we cut back and then their person's not anymore. And, like, that happens all the time in 2001. Um, so, like, absolutely it's disorienting. Um, and absolutely it's, like, stringing us along as an audience in a way that is confusing, but we just understand, we understand just enough so we can connect A to B to C to D, but we don't get to see D in relation to A, you know? Yeah. Um, it's kind of a, like a syllogism in a way of shot, reverse shot, reverse shot, reverse shot, you know? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that's, what I really liked about that scene is that it connected this confusion of time to a confusion of space in a way that, I, I noticed a couple other times the film did that. The first when they were heading into like the belly of the spaceship for the first time. And we had just gone through this really fast-paced sequence of the helicopter landing and taking Luis to the, the landing site and going through the medical procedures and just so fast paced and then time seems to seems to completely stand still when she's staring like down the barrel of the spaceship mm. there's this complete suspension of time echoed by the suspension of gravity and the redefinition of space or spatial orientation when she jumps out to the wall and it becomes the floor and looks down the hallway, which is literally down the hallway. And then when they enter the big room, uh, the camera is upside down, which further adds right. to the spatial disorientation, which is basically to suggest that all reference points <laughs> like, are unreliable at this point. Exactly. We are nowhere, <laughs> and we there is no time, there is no space. Um, 
it just doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not relevant. Yeah, I'm there totally is no with up, there. down, left, right. There is no forward, backward. Uh huh. And there's no chronology forward, backwards. You right. know, now and then. Um, so interesting. Um, the 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 first moment that Doctor Bank crosses through time to receive information or give information is when uh, they're all at the at the table figuring out what to do. Um, and earlier in the flashback, she had told her daughter, if you want, you know, if you want science, call your father. Uh -huh. I can't think of the word you, 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 the technical word you want for this thing. We flash back, you know, return to where we are in real time, quote unquote, in the base camp. And then we're at this meeting and, 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 and suddenly, uh, Jeremy Renner is his name. Jeremy Renner's character says, uh, it's a zero sum game. Um, and we've, in that moment, flash back to her conversation with her daughter. Her daughter's at the top of the stairs, about to leave her room. And Dr. Uh, Banks says, zero-sum game. <laughs> we watch her. It's like in that scene, she recalled a word she had forgotten and said it to her daughter. But also the way that it's constructed makes it feel like she realized it from Jeremy Renner's character and then brought it to the other time and said you know, zero sum game. And so like, it suggests we can cross that threshold, uh, in that order, uh, to transmit information. It's crazy, which right. teases right up for the thing she does with, um, uh, is his name Shang? General Shang. General yeah. Shang. Yeah. Later in the film. Yeah. But you see how like incrementally through those flashbacks, through the way they're constructed, we're drawn to understand incrementally how this can work mm -hmm. how we can cross the threshold in a way where like if we start at the end of the movie we're like what is going on i i don't i don't uh, i don't buy it you know absolutely but yeah. they give it to us bit by bit so that by the end we're like oh my gosh of course this has to be the way <laughs> it was always gonna be yeah and of course it's all just constructed and, but uh -huh. we're left with a sense that this is possible <laughs> yeah in a way that i think movies alone can give you a sense of like wonder and this is possible when yeah. you thought something that wasn't possible isn't because you can do anything in a movie right <laughs> you can use the tools of a film to create an experience um that is impossible in the real world right the other thing just just like little things that were explained for me watching it the second time knowing the premise there's one moment where scientists in different countries were talking to each other and one of them said, well, they know primes. We showed them prime numbers and they got it, but they don't understand our algebra. Mm. And, you know, if you're listening to the podcast, you know that I'm a mathematician. <laughs> and the, the thing that I love about prime numbers is, those, is that they're nonlinear. If you don't know a prime number, its factors are only one and itself. So a composite number can be like two times six is 12. Um, but 13 is prime because you can't multiply anything other than one and 13. Um, when I say anything, I mean any whole numbers other than one and 13 to get 13. Each number prime or composite exists as a combination of its factors, not in any orientation or direction, but if you're doing algebra, you have an equation and it's got some variables in it and it's in a line. And it, it struck me watching through it again that algebra, Algebra might be linear in a way that's not interesting or not useful or not comprehensible um, to a, a, a being that understands time non-linearly. 
So you're saying that like like a, a prime number is like their circular language, um, just all at once, basically. Like it doesn't matter the order that it goes in. It's just comprised of the things it's comprised of. Right. Whereas, and it like, can be one times thirteen or thirteen times one, and it doesn't matter. Uh huh. It's the same. It's the same number. You get the same result. Right. Mm-hmm. Or like we write sentences in a line. Um, but that would be like the analogy to like an equation where you multiply two things together and you get a result. Right. For them, the circle is like you're saying is like the prime number thing where it's just uh, it just happens all at once. Right. Huh. And especially if we had you know given them an equation in the form of x squared plus two x plus one equals zero. Uh-huh. That would have been completely incomprehensible to them because if they understood that, they would understand it as like the parabola it represents, like the collection of like X's that it represents. Right. Well, here's my question though. Like heptapods seem to possess a power beyond humans. Um, I wonder if it's, it's less about like, you know, uh, they wouldn't understand algebra and more about, uh, they're choosing to, uh, like mirror back concepts that relate to the gift they're trying to give humans. Oh, interesting. You know what I mean? Like, maybe heptapods can be like, okay, like, 2 plus 6x equals 15. Like, maybe they can do that. Uh-huh. But, like, that's not the point right now. The point is to teach us uh, uh, in as many ways as they can that things can happen all at once and time is, is no object. Like, maybe mm. they just mirror back the prime numbers thing because, like, it's relevant to the thing they're trying to give us. That's interesting. I don't want to. I don't want to conclude that heptapods don't need algebra. Like uh-huh. that's what I'm trying to say is uh-huh. I don't think algebra is beyond heptapods necessarily, but that like uh, prime numbers is more relevant to the thing they're trying to say. Right. And I think the mathematical language we use to represent algebra wouldn't translate as well to nonlinear orthography. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. D- Jeremy Renner's character, who I can't, Doctor Donnelly. That's his name. Um, Doctor Donnelly <laughs> says uh, to Doctor Banks. Quote, you approach language like a mathematician. Do you know that? Um, Mm. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that either, because just all the math in this movie, I think, is relevant to the language, is relevant to the theme. Like, I think everything breaks down. I don't know. Did did the way that she approached language make sense to you from a mathematical perspective? Because if you're listeners of this podcast, you'll know that I am not a mathematician. (laughs) (laughs) And I am quite poor at math uh, and quite good at language. (laughs) Yeah. But, um... (laughs) Part of the visual representation of language struck me as very interesting in its geometry and like, you know, circles as nonlinear orthography, even like nonlinear is a geometric way of describing language. Ah. Um, and nonlinear orthography doesn't uh, necessarily refer to a visual representation of language, but it is geometric in its expression. The thing that struck me as mathematical about Dr. Banks's approach to language is, I guess, its relationship to set theory. Um, the crux of the conflict in this movie is whether or not weapon means weapon, mm. right? But in Dr. Banks's interpretation of language, there's not a one-to-one correlation between all sets. Um, between all elements of a language. So weapon doesn't necessarily correlate to weapon and only weapon. Um, 
you know, weapon in one language may mean weapon or tool in another language. War in one language may not translate to war in another language. It may only translate to argument or a desire, desire for, for more cows. cows. Right. <laughs> right. And I think if, if you don't approach language like a mathematician, you might intuit that there is a one-to-one -one correlation between sets of words um, in one language and sets of words in another language. Yeah, so if you're like, uh, what's the French word for... Uh, well, here's, here's an example. This is a great example. In French, because I studied French, uh -huh. um, there's a word, introuvable, which means roughly unfindable in English. Okay. But in English, the word introuvable is introuvable. We don't, it's unfindable. Oh. We do not have a word that means cannot be found. We have a phrase that means that. We can kind of circumlocute uh, the concept introuvable, but French has just this great, elegant, single word um, for something that is unfindable. So like, right. you know, that sometimes if I can't find like my keys or if I can't find my cards or anything, I'm like, oh my God, they're, they're introuvable. Because there's, <laughs> there's not an equivalent between those two sets. Right. And the ways that those languages, like the words that we have at our disposal for each language um, influences, uh, according to a certain theory, influences the way that we perceive the world and understand concepts in general. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you don't have uh, uh, specific words for, you know, like the color chartreuse, then you might not even perceive a distinction between chartreuse and, and pink, you know? Uh-huh. Um, so... That's so relevant to be like, do these creatures understand the difference between war and games and uh, weapons and gifts or, you know, all of these things that may not have a one to one rate, uh, relationship between uh -huh. those two sets? Is that sort of relating what you're saying yeah. back to language? Yeah, definitely. The other mathematical lens I might look at this through is, again, that of numbers and their factors. So when she's putting together the parts of one of those like circle words, phrases, sentences. Um, she knows each circle word needs to be a combination of different word elements. You know, maybe one of them is just a, a heptapod's name and it's like a prime number. There's only one element and it's in a circle and that's the circle word. But for another one like offer weapon, question mark. Hmm. Really, it's a, a completely different word than offer weapon without a question mark. But it's got some of the similar elements, and she understands that adding an element like a question mark creates a completely different object than all of the elements without that question mark. Like multiplying together two and six will give you a completely different number than multiplying two and six and three. Ah, uh, right. Okay, I, 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 just, I think I understand now. Right. And there's sort of the relation to um, molecular science as well. Like adding one more um, atomic element will create a completely different compound with completely different It's not properties. just the first compound with a little bit of this other compound. It's, right. it's something totally chemically unique. Uh-huh, fundamentally different. And, and it results in different characteristics physically. Uh-huh. This is, it's such an intelligent film. Um, it, it, I, 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 I'm blown away by it. Every time I watch it, I'm blown away by how, um, just, uh, really well crafted it is. The story, the characters, um, apart from the one moment where Jeremy Renner's character, Dr. Donnelly, suddenly starts narrating for no reason. Uh, <laughs> I, he's, that's not justified ever. He's not writing in a journal. He's not calling home. Jeremy Renner just suddenly starts talking in the middle of this film. 
Um, and it gets me every time because I'm like, this was never his story. Uh-huh. He was never telling us this story. He's not telling someone else what's going on. He's just suddenly talking and I have no idea why. Apart from that one <laughs> huge exception <laughs> um, that I have yet to find a justification for in the film, uh, I, 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 it's so well constructed. <laughs> um, and I... I and in a way that, too, it, it speaks to themes about, like, empathy and understanding and comprehension and all of the, the barriers between humans connecting with each other um, and, and comprehending what, what one another means um, and what, we, what, what our intention is. Um, uh, and uh, I, it, it does it through so many lenses simultaneously, through the lens of language, the lens of math and science and film and story and language. Like, did I say language? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and language and story. No. Um, but it does it all at the same time in a way that is so... And time itself. It does it all at the same time. Uh-huh. At no time at all. Right. In a way that just, um, I think, uh, captures so much about what it fundamentally is to just try to understand ourselves and what we are capable of and each other and and connect and uh, communicate. Um, it's just, there's so many themes in this movie. Um, I think it's really hard to nail it down to any one, except that in her last monologue, Dr. Banks talks about how even now when she knows how it's going to happen, she wouldn't want it any other way. Um, this idea that even if we were able to transcend all the barriers that keep us from connecting, um, you know, and if we were able to see how everything were to play out and, and understand, well, like, with perfect comprehension, um, what life is going to be, that we really, really wouldn't use those tools to make it any different. Um, and that, like, even if we can't transcend those things, it wouldn't change the way that we lived. It wouldn't change the way that we are. Um, we would just be able to see it in a different way. And that, like, you know, there's a certain peace in that. There's a certain comfort in knowing that, like, even if we were to, even if a person like Dr. Banks were able to get a gift to, to see time all at once and experience her life in that way, she wouldn't change it. Um, mm-hmm. Which is, like, I think um, a comforting notion to anyone who wishes they could see their life all at once, thinking that they would make a difference because maybe they wouldn't. Uh, that's where yeah. the film, I think, lands thematically is that... Uh, yeah, it wouldn't change things, really. Yeah, and it seems to me that the primary benefit or gift of being able to see everything all at once is to make each moment last always mm. and to make each person in your life really be unstoppable and so that no one is ever really lost and nothing is ever really lost. And it has some of the same themes and takeaways as Slaughterhouse-Five, where the Trophimodorians can see all of time at once. And um, the protagonist um, learns that, that no one is really lost. And, and whenever anyone dies, um, he just says, so it goes. Mm-hmm. So it goes. And, and they're not gone forever. They're still here and they're everywhere. They will always, and they're always. Yeah, they will always know? be where they were and they will always be when they were. Right. Um, if we could go there, we, we, we could say hello. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, but we can't. <laughs> uh-huh. But they're still there, and they're unstoppable, and that's not some sort of 
uh, detached, uh, hyper-optimistic concept of like, you're unstoppable. But it's really, it's truly through this philosophy that's really true, that like even those who die young um, and tragically and are lost are, are still unstoppable because they will always be when they were. Right. What a great movie. Um, I loved watching it. I've only seen it three times so far, and every time I've just loved I've loved watching it. Um, so if you haven't seen Arrival, um, it's too bad we just spoiled the whole thing for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but as always in our episodes, I encourage uh, I encourage you to watch the thing that we're about to discuss, and then so you have familiarity with it. When we talk about it, you know what we're referencing. So yeah, yeah watch what we watch what we're talking about before episodes. Listen to us discuss it, um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it too. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're going to set up probably an email address or something where you can reach out to us and and, yeah. and correct us or argue <laughs> with us or add to our conversations. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, that'd be really fun because um, <laughs> I would love to get become closer with everyone who uh, wants to watch closely. Absolutely. Um, and wants to talk about what they're what they're discovering. So that's uh, that's the end of our episode uh, on arrival. Um, so more episodes coming really soon. Um, and um, uh, yeah. And uh, here's that theme music that uh, we've just heard for the first time. (laughs) Yeah, this is Spencer Channel. (laughs) And Mallory Strong. Signing off. (laughs) See you next time. Bye.